Father, we live in times where we're facing so many adverse circumstances. It it's, would be real easy for us, Lord, in these times to, to get bitter and bitter towards our, in our, ourselves, bitter toward each other, Lord, and even bitter towards you. And I ask today that you show us through this study just, just how serious it is to have a bitter heart towards you. And Lord, also show us in this study the cure for that bitter heart. Lord, only you can cure it, and the, the cure is simple and profound. And Lord, I help, help us to see that, uh, that remedy for, for what ails a lot of us today, because it's so easy, Lord, for us to become bitter. But, but we of all people, Lord, should have hearts full of joy, hearts full of gratitude, and hearts full of praise for all that Jesus Christ has done for us. And he's done so much for us, Lord, and we're so grateful for that. We ask that, again, that you bless us in our study today. We ask that in the name of Jesus Christ. It's in his precious name that I pray. Amen. Exodus chapter 15, an interesting chapter. Uh, kind of gives us a picture of Israel and, and their attitude now that they've had this great victory. Uh, but we're going to watch them as they head from this mountaintop of, of joy all the way down into the pit of bitterness. And it's going to become a pattern for the Israelites, just like I think it's become a pattern for a lot of us. I mean, I don't know about you, but I, 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 I'm, I'm, when things are going my way, man, I'm praising God and I'm full of joy. But then God leads me into some deep, dark uh, valley, and, and uh, it's real easy for my heart to become bitter. And, and, and if you're not careful... You'll live your Christian life on a roller coaster. You'll constantly be going up and you'll constantly, constantly be going down. And, and that's a very destructive pattern uh, in the life of a Christian. It's a destructive pattern for everyone, but especially in the life of a Christian. James Merritt describes bitterness as an emotional cancer that will eat you up from inside out. That's really what it is. Uh, you could call it a blight that consumes all your joy or a burden that will crush you underneath its weight. Uh, you could call it a pot full of poison that, that will sicken your soul. I mean, there's nothing really good about bitterness. And, and I think a lot of us experience bitterness at least from time to time. Uh, and, and it's all those things and more. And so it's something that we really should avoid. It's something that we really should fear, especially in the days in which we live. It's going to be real easy for us uh, with all the things, adverse circumstances that we're facing to let our hearts get bitter. And uh, I mean, you just look around at our nation. Just look what bitterness has done to the government of the United States of America. I mean, there's so much bitterness in Congress that they can't get anything done. I mean, they're paralyzed by their bitterness towards each other. And a government is only reflective of its people. And, and I think as a people in America, we've become bitter. That's why we're on the verge of anarchy and, and uh, maybe even a civil war, as some people are thinking, because we have become so bitter in this nation. And, and here's the question. Is there a cure for that bitterness? Well, some people would say the cure would be to, to, to make our circumstances better. 
the cure would be for Donald Trump to be elected, or if you like Joe Biden, for Joe Biden to be elected. There's no politician that's going to cure all of this. There's only one cure, and we're going to look at that cure here today as we, we come to chapter number 15 of Exodus. When we left off last time, the Israelites were anything but bitter. I mean, they had uh, crossed the Red Sea. The entire Egyptian army had been destroyed, and they were full of joy, and now they're ready to sing a song unto the Lord. You ever been like that? I mean, things are going so well, you just want to sing to the Lord. And, and so they sing this song that we're going to look at today, and, and many people call it the Song of Moses, and more than likely it was written by Moses under the inspiration of God, and so, so Song of Moses would be an appropriate title. I would call it maybe the Song of Salvation. And maybe even better than that, we're going to see here in a minute, I would call it the song of salvation through Jesus Christ. You could call it the song of Jesus, because you can see Jesus right here in this text and, and, uh, as we look at this. And so, so uh, let's go to chapter 15, and let's, let's look at this great song. That Remember the setting. They've had this great uh, victory. God's given them the victory. They've crossed the Red Sea. They're heading to the Promised Land. Life couldn't be better. And so they break out into a song. Then in verse number 15, it says, Then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord. In gratitude and joy, they sing this song. Listen, listen, to, listen to the words. I will sing to Jehovah, to the Lord, for he has triumphed. He hasn't just triumphed, he's triumphed gloriously. In a way, only the Lord could triumph through, through his supernatural power. It says, The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord, Jehovah, is my strength in my song. And watch this. Watch this very carefully. And he has become my salvation. I, a, a few weeks back, we were in a text, and I showed you in that text where the name of Jesus appears in that text. And I told you that there's several places in the Old Testament where you see the name of Jesus. This is one of those cases. Uh, in the Hebrew, that, word, that phrase, my salvation, Salvation is Yeshua. You're familiar with that name? Yeshua is, in English, Joshua. In Greek, it is Jesus, which we call, transliterate into English, Jesus. So right there in that text, look at what it says. It says, the Lord is my strength, and he has become my Jesus, my salvation. Jehovah is salvation. So you could very well call this the song of Jesus. He goes on and listen to these great words that they sing. He says, he is my God and I will praise him. He's my father's God. Jesus is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the, my father's God. And I will exalt him above all gods. You know, the Israelites had lived hundreds of years there in the land of Egypt and they'd seen all of these pagan gods and probably some of them had had taken up the worship of these pagan gods, but now they've seen the Lord in action. Uh, they're going to exalt him above every god. They know that he is the only true and living God. And we know that as believers, if you're a believer, and Christ has worked in your life, you know that Jesus is the only true and living God. And he's exalted above all other gods. Paul puts it like this in Philippians chapter 2. He says, God has exalted him and given him a name above every name that at his name every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is exalted above all gods. Then look down at verse number 3. 
Something else we learn about the Lord. Something else we learn about Jesus. The Lord is a man of war. How about that? The Lord is his name. Jehovah is his name. How does he describe him? He says, the Lord is a man of war. Now, that's certainly true of Jesus. We like to think of Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, but he's also the Lion of Judah. He is a man of war. Remember what Jesus said over in Matthew chapter 10. He said, do not think that I came to bring peace to the world. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. And so he's the one who started this war with Pharaoh, and he's the one who finished that war. And he still starts war, wars for his purposes uh, to, usher, to ultimately usher in his kingdom. And, and uh, that's why I said last week, you better be sure you're asking the right question. The question isn't, is God on my side? The question is, are you on God's side? And if you're on God's side, you're on the winning side. If you're not for me, Jesus says, you're against me. If we're going to go to war and, and for the kingdom of God, then we have to be on the side of the Lord, who is a man of war. Then he goes on in verse number four, and he says, Pharaoh's chariots and his army, he is cast in the sea. He, he, his chosen captains also are drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. Now watch this. Listen to how he des describes the Lord, this battle. He says, your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Uh, your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy to pieces. Now, when we hear in the Bible, or we see in the Bible these words, the right hand of God, uh, remember God is spirit. Uh, God in the flesh is who? He's Jesus Christ. Who, when we talk about the right hand of power, we're talking about the power of Jehovah God, the power of God Almighty. Who sits at his right hand? Now, there's not two gods sitting on the throne of God. Who sits at his right hand? Jesus sits at the right hand of God. And so all power and all judgment and all mercy and, and all life uh, and, all, and all of his spirit has been given to Jesus. And Jesus dwells all the Godhead bodily. He sits at the right hand. That's a figure of speech. He sits at the right hand of God. I don't know, I, I mean, I, you remember the story when, when, when uh, Jesus, the night before Jesus was hung on the cross, they took him to Pharaoh's house, I mean, to Caiaphas' house, and, and uh, they beat him, and they mocked him, and uh, they brought false witnesses against him. And remember, go with me, let's, let's just go there for a minute, go back, go to Matthew chapter 26. After all of these witnesses were brought and after they had tortured Jesus to some degree, uh, Caiaphas finally just, just asked the question. I'm in Matthew 20. Go to Matthew 26. And look down at verse number 63. There we go. And, I, and I'm going to go to the latter part of that verse. Listen to what Caiaphas says to Jesus. He finally, you know, says, I've had enough of this. I'm just going to ask you plainly. I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And listen to what Jesus said to him. He said, it is as you say. 
Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter, sometime in the future, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of God, of, of, of the power of God, and coming in the clouds of heaven. Now, what was Jesus saying? Was he saying he's going to be sitting in a chair next to the Father, and you're going to see them in a chair coming upon this earth? No. This, all this was symbolic of the fact that Jesus has all the power of God. And one day you're going to see me coming in that power. And what, what, what was he speaking of there? He was speaking of his second coming. Sometime in the future, Caiaphas, you're going to know that I'm God. And Caiaphas knew exactly what he was saying here. He wasn't just saying, I'm the Christ. Jesus was saying, not only am I the Christ, I am Jehovah God, God Almighty. And, and you can see that Caiaphas understood exactly what he said, because look at verse number 65. Then the high priest tore his clothes, saying, he has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look now, you have heard this blasphemy. What do you think? They answered and said, he is deserving of death because he has not only proclaimed to be the Christ, he has proclaimed himself to be God Almighty. And that is exactly who he is. And one day, very soon, after the great tribulation, he is going to come back to this earth in all power and glory, and Caiaphas is going to see him coming, and Caiaphas then is going to know that the one he crucified, or had crucified, is none other than Jehovah God himself. Let me chase that rabbit down the road just a little bit further. I remember years ago, I was studying this passage one day, uh, back in 1990, I can actually date it, and, and uh, I was looking at this passage, and I got my mail that day, and I received a copy of, my, my copy of Bar Magazine, Biblical Archaeological uh, Review. And, and on the cover, I just read this passage, and on the cover of that magazine was a picture of the ossuary that Caiaphas was, Caiaphas was buried in. They had actually discovered that ossuary. They had found it in a in a cave located near where Caiaphas' house was uh, in ancient times. And they had taken the ossuary out of the cave, and they had had it dated, and they had looked at all the inscription on it, and it says Caiaphas, the high priest, uh, Pontius Pilate is mentioned. There's, there's, uh, they checked the other ossuaries, and they were all dated back to this time. And so they came to the conclusion that this certainly was the ossuary of Caiaphas, and I thought, how interesting. And then I read on in the article, and I came down to the end of the article, and it had these words, and it gave me chills. It ran chills down my spine. It said, they took the ossuary, and they put it in the Museum of Israel, and they buried his bones on the Mount of Olives. Now, I'm going to tell you why that ran chills down my spine. Go over to Zechariah chapter 14. The next to last book in the Old Testament, Zechariah chapter 14. I told you we were chasing a rabbit here, but hang with me. A very important rabbit. Ze Zechariah chapter 14, picking up in verse number 1. And speaking of the great tribulation and the coming, second coming of Jesus Christ. Listen to what it says. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. For I will gather the nations to battle against Jerusalem. 
Where are they coming to? They're coming to Armageddon. He's speaking of the battle of Armageddon. Then jump down to verse number three. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations. Now, is this, how long is this battle going to last? It's going to last that long, a split second. The Lord's going to speak and the armies are going to be defeated. So he's, so he's speaking of the time when he's coming down to the earth. He says, then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of the battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. I've stood right there on the Mount of Olives, east, from, uh, on the east side of the, the temple, looking out westward towards the temple. And listen to what this says here. It says, in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from the east to the west. And I believe at that point, I believe this is what Jesus was prophesying. At that point, point, the graves, you look down, if you stand on the Mount of Olives, all you see down below you is graves. And that's where they buried the bones of Caiaphas. He's going to have a front row seat. Whether it's just his body, symbolically, or God raises his spirit, he's going to see the Lord coming in glory. Hallelujah, what a great day that's going to be. So it's a good rabbit to chase. All right. Anyway, verse, verse number seven, going back to Exodus. I love this, this passage right here. And in the greatness of your excellence. I mean, excellent is excellent. But in the greatness of your excellence. Your excellence, excellence is greater than anybody's excellence. You have overthrown those who have rose against you. And you have sent forth your wrath, uh, it consumed them like stubble. You know, when we think of the greatness of God's excellence, what do we normally think of? If you were to ask uh, a lot of people, what, you know, what's so excellent about the Lord? And they would say his love. But it's not just his love. For him to be a God of love, he has to be a just God. He has to be a God of justice. He has to be a God who takes vengeance on wrong, on evil. And that's the God who he is. But he's also a God of mercy. You, we saw that with the Egyptians. He showed all sorts of mercy towards the Egyptians and towards Pharaoh. But at some point, he is going to exercise his justice. And when he does, those who buck him are going to become like stubble. Yes, he's a God of love, but he's also a God of justice. Then we pick up in verse number 8. And with the blast of your nostrils, uh, the waters were gathered together. The flood stood upright like a heap. The depths congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be satisfied on them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. But you blew with the wind and the sea covered them and they sank. Uh, like lead in the mighty waters. Nothing short of a supernatural miracle of God. Then he says in verse number 11, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness? I mean, glorious in holiness. God's not just holy. God is glorious in his holiness. If you were to read, I'm not, rec this isn't recommended reading, but if you were to read about all the pagan gods that they worshipped in antiquity, you would see that none of them were glorious in their holiness. A lot of them were glorious in their power, but none of them were glorious in their holiness. God is glorious in his holiness. And because he's glorious in his holy holiness, he's fearful in praises. That means he's worthy of all praise. 
doing wonders. And then he describes the wonders that he did in verse number 12. He said, you stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You and your mercy have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. And watch this. You have guided them in, in your strength to your holy habitation. To your holy habitation. To a place that's totally separate from this world. In your mercy you have led us, is what Moses says. We didn't deserve to be delivered. Uh, we were delivered by your mercy. We're no better than the Egyptians. The only difference between us and the Egyptians is that we were redeemed by that blood on the doorpost, or otherwise we would have died too. Uh, and, and, and so their redemption wasn't, didn't come from their own strength. It came from the Lord. All they had to do, all they had to do was to walk by faith through that walls or through those two walls of water on dry ground to the other side with Pharaoh's armies chased. That's all they had to do. Now I got news for you. They wouldn't have done it if they didn't have to do it. They didn't have any choice. There was nowhere else to go. Isn't that the way God works sometimes in faith? I mean, we exercise our faith because we've got no other choice but to exercise our faith. I'll tell you right now, if there had been an exit somewhere along those walls, they would have took it. Uh, if they thought they could have defeated Pharaoh's army, they would have turned that way. The only reason they went that way, because it was the only choice they had. And that's true for a lot of us. We don't really exercise our faith until that's the only choice we have. I love the story Vance Hebner often tells about the lady who went to the doctor. And... Uh, the doctor said, I really, you know, got some bad news for you. There's nothing else we can do for you. You're just going to have to trust the Lord. And she said, my, has it come to this? And I think that's the way a lot of us are. When the only choice we have is to trust the Lord, we say to ourselves, my, has it come to this? And I think that's what the Israelites said. My, has it come, has it come to this? But look where God led them there. Look down at the passage again. He led them to his holy habitation. Where is this holy habitation? It's wherever God is. And whenever God takes us to his holy habitation, I'm going to tell you, it's not on the television set. Uh, it's not at the movie theater. It's not in the sports arena. It's not, it, it might be at work, but it's not in your work. Wherever the, wherever the Lord is, that is his holy habitation, and it is always separate from this world. Now, where is he leading them? He's leading them out of Egypt into the wilderness and later on into the promised land, into a holy place, separated from all of these pagan uh, gods and all the things that went with this pagan society. And that's where God is leading you. And that's where God is leading me. He's leading me to his holy habitation. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, he says, come out from among them and be separate. Do not touch what is unclean, and I, you'll experience a relationship with me and my holy habitation. I will be your father, and you shall be my sons and daughters. That's where he wants to lead all of us. But sometimes he's gonna, he, he has to 
he has to take us there kicking and screaming. We're like cats holding on to this, uh, onto this world. You know, he just has to drag us away because we are so worldly. You know what? I believe the good thing about this COVID-19 virus is it's really, it really is opening the eyes of lots of believers and it's getting us to separate ourselves from this world. We've seen the reality of what this sports world is, what it's really all about. It's about money. It's about, it's about trying to control people. And people have been controlled by sports. And, and i got to tell you, I'm sick of it. I'm, I'm sick of sports. I'm sick of a lot of things in this world that, that, that God has shown me through these difficult times the reality of what these things really are. I don't know how many people I've talked to who are Christians that have cut off their cable. People who have the money to buy cable, but they've cut off their cable. Why have they cut off their cable? Because there's nothing worthy of God on television. There's nothing holy on television. It is all pagan. It's gone to pot. I mean, it's not worth watching. And, and, and I, you might not be there yet, but I'll tell you this right now. If you're a child of God, God is in the process of separating you from this world, and God gets what he wants. One day, it might not be COVID-19 that gets you there, but God's going to get you separated from those things that are destroying you. Now, go, go to verse number uh, 14. He says in verse number 14, he says, the, the people will hear and be afraid when they hear what you've done to the Egyptians. Sorrow will take hold of the inhabitants of Philistia. They, then, then the chiefs of Edom will be dismayed. The mighty man of Moab, trembling, will take hold of them. All the inhabitants of Canaan will melt away. Fear and dread will fall on them by the garments of your arm. They will be as still as a stone till your uh, people pass over. The next place they're going to pass over is what? It's going to be the Jordan. Until we pass the Jordan and go in the promised land, uh, they're going to be afraid of us till the people pass over whom you have purchased, the people you have redeemed. People are going to fear us from now on, and we're going to make it all the way to the promised land. It's a shame they later lost that swagger they had at this moment. Because remember, when they do get to the promised land the first time and God tells them to go in, they make a big mistake. They send 12 spies ahead of them, and those spies go in and they see something. They see walled cities and they see giants. And they come back and they give that report. But i got to tell you, this tells me that the giants were afraid of them. The giants would have cut and run. They would have defeated any enemy they had gone after. Joshua knew that. Caleb knew that. But the rest of them didn't do that. So they didn't go into the promised land. And so they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. But even after those 40 years, the people in Canaan were afraid of the Israelites because they feared their God. Go over, you remember the story uh, when they finally go into the promised land, they send two spies into the city of Jericho, the first city that they're going to attack. And they go, these spies, I don't know why they went there, but they go to this house of ill repute and they run into Rahab the harlot. Flip with me over to Joshua chapter 2. Listen to what Rahab tells these men in Joshua chapter 2. Verse number nine, and she said to the man, I know that the Lord Jehovah, she knew all about, here was this pagan living in Jericho, 
and she knew all about the Lord Jehovah. I know that the Lord Jehovah has given you the land, and the era of you has the terror of you, I'm sorry, has fallen on us, and that all of the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted still after 40 years because of you. Now there were some other things that happened that contributed to that fear, but the main thing was what the Lord had done to the Egyptian army. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan. These were giants, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted, neither did there remain any more courage uh, in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven uh, above and on earth beneath. You know what happened when the Lord saved the Israelites and from, the, from the Pharaoh, when, he, when they had those victory over Og and, and uh, the giants of Canaan? Uh, they became, he made believers out of the Canaanites. They feared the Lord. Now, when I say he made believers out of them, he didn't make children of God out of them. There's only going to be a few people from the Canaanites who were saved. One of those is going to be Rahab the harlot and her family because they believed. And remember what I said last week. You can believe that the, God, that the Lord is powerful, but you've got to put your faith in the one whom you believe in. They never took that step. There's a lot of people who believe in Jesus, but they've never put their faith in Jesus. You've got to put your faith in Jesus and enter into a relationship with Jesus, and that's what Rahab eventually did. Now, go with me to verse number 17, back in Exodus chapter 15. It says, You will bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, in the place, O Lord, which you have made, for you for your own dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands uh, have established. Now he's, now he's prophesying about Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, the habitation of the Lord, the place where the Lord shall reign forever and ever. Uh, he will reign there uh, in the tabernacle, later in the temple, and then finally uh, in the, the, the millennial, uh, not finally in the millennial temple, and then in eternity he will rule and reign from the new Jerusalem forever and ever and ever. Now, the last uh, part of this song is just a recap of what the Lord has done. Verse number 19, he says, For the horses of Pharaoh uh, went with the chariots and his horsemen into the sea, and the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them, but the children of Israel went on dry land in the middle of the sea. What a miracle. What a song. Here these guys are. They couldn't be happier. They couldn't have more joy. They couldn't have a stronger faith in the Lord. I mean, they loved the Lord. They loved Moses. And it's going to last for three days. Three days. But first, Miriam's going to write a song. Now, Miriam wasn't nearly the songwriter that Moses was. I think men have a better gift for writing songs. I'm joking. But she, she wasn't near as prolific in her songwriting as Moses was. So it says, then Miriam, but she was a prophetess. Notice that. Women can be prophetesses, just like men. They tell you women can't be prophets. Well, you tell them about Miriam. Uh, then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, 
took the timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out with her and with timbrels and with dances. And I, I think they were kind of tired of singing, so this is a really short song. And Miriam answered them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. And so they end this great celebration. They had a big party that night. They get up the next morning and look what happens. Verse number 22. So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea. And when they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days in the wilderness, they found no water. They were getting thirsty. And they were looking around and they were saying to each other, what's going on here? This isn't as much fun as it was the other day. Now when they came to Marah, they saw water. But they couldn't drink the water because the water was bitter. And therefore they called the name of the place Marah. And Marah simply means bitter. Now that name Marah should ring a bell for you. Because you remember the story of Ruth in the book of Ruth. Well, the story begins, there's this woman named Naomi, and her name means pleasant. And she had a pleasant life, and so they, she lived in Bethlehem, and they called her Naomi. Well, there was a famine in the land. And so she and her husband, Imelech, and her two sons, Chilon and Malon, I, I think I'm close on those names anyway, which actually Chilon and Malon mean sickly and puny. They went up with her to Moab. And while the sons were in Moab, one of them married Ruth. Well, Elimelech dies, and then Chilon and Malon both die because they were sickly and puny. And then she decides to go back down to Bethlehem, and she takes Ruth with her. And when she gets there, all the people say, is that Naomi? Naomi, is that pleasant? She says, don't call me pleasant. Call me Mara, because my life is bitter. And, and here she was, and, 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 and she had this cancer that was eating on her from the inside out. She had this burden that was about to crush her. She had this blight that had stolen all her joy. She had this poison that was sickening her soul. And so she says, don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter because I am bitter. I'm bitter in my soul. I'm bitter against everything. I'm bitter against the Lord because the Lord has done this to me. That's really what she was saying. But little did she know that God was at work in her life in the most wonderful possible way. He was going to restore her fortune. He, was gonna, he, was, he gave her the best daughter-in-law in the world outside Kaylee and Blair. Those are the best two. But the, at that time, she was the best daughter-in-law in the world. And he was going to make her life pleasant again. And I got to tell you, if you saw her today and you told her that she was in the line of Jesus Christ himself, she'd say, you know, I'm sure glad the Lord did that. I'm a very pleasant woman. I had a very pleasant life, and man, is it pleasant now. And so here were the Israelites, and they're one day, they're, they're full of confidence and, and joy, and they're singing to the Lord, and three days later, 
They're drinking bitter waters and they're becoming bitter towards Moses and they're becoming bitter towards the Lord. Now look now at verse number 24. And the people complained. They complained. Remember I told you this was a pattern that you're going to see over and over again with the people of Israel. They're going to constantly complain. And why do they complain? They complain because they're bitter. Uh, They're no longer singing. They're complaining against Moses. And when you're complaining against Moses, who were they really complaining against? They were complaining against the Lord. And listen to what they said. What are we going to drink, Moses? And that's not all they said. You know what else they said? Did you bring us out here because there weren't enough graves in Egypt to bury us in? Did you bring us up here to, out here to die of thirst? Didn't you know that we had good water back in Egypt? Why would you bring us here to this bitter water? We're going to all die of thirst? And really what they were doing, listen to me very carefully because that's what we do when we, we complain against the Lord. They were blaspheming the Lord. Singing one day, blaspheming the next day. Remember what James says over in James chapter uh, number 3? He says, brethren, it shouldn't be so that out of the same mouth you bless the Lord and out of the same mouth you curse others and you curse the Lord. But that's what we do. Things going our way, we're praising the Lord, things aren't going our way. You might not curse the Lord with what we consider modern day curse words. But when you throw doubt at the Lord, you're cursing the Lord. You're blaspheming the Lord. And that's exactly what they were doing. Now, he goes on in verse number 25, and he says, So he cried out to the Lord. I love this. Moses doesn't attack the people. There's a great lesson there. This is something Moses learned learned early on in his ministry. Whenever things were going bad, he did not attack the people. Remember what he did over and over again? He fell on his face and he cried out to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on behalf of the people because he loved the Lord. He cried out to the Lord. And the Lord showed him a tree. Now of all things, he shows him a tree. You can put it up there now. And, And he showed him a tree And when he cast it into the waters, the waters were made sweet. Now, how in the world did that happen? That certainly was a miracle of God, but God's showing us something here. There he he made it a statue and an ordinance to them. Now, you've got to ask the question, what was the statue of an ordinance? I mean, he threw a tree into the water. How did that become a statue and an ordinance? Well, God was teaching them a lesson. And really, I think he was really pointing forward to us to teach us a lesson. Whenever the waters would become bitter, what you were supposed to do, this was a statue and it was an ordinance, you cast this dead tree into the waters. What tree? A dead tree, I have no doubt, much like that tree in the shape of a cross, much like that tree on which Jesus Christ was hung when he died for our sins. And that's what makes the bitter waters of life sweet. Notice, notice also in the last part of verse number 25, he, it says, there he, the Lord, tested them. It wasn't Moses that led them to the bitter waters. Who led them to those bitter waters? It was the Lord. And what was the test for? What was he testing? What was the Lord testing them for? To see if their faith that they sing so proudly about 
was deep and as true as they thought it was. The Lord knew it wasn't, but he was going to show them it wasn't. He was going to show them that, you know, you think you've got a lot of faith because of what you've seen, but your faith is really shallow. shallow. One more problem, one more difficulty, I lead you into that difficulty, and immediately you're ready to, to throw in the towel and quit. You ever feel like God's doing that in your life? I mean, one day you've got a victory and you swear, I'm going to have victory the rest of my life. And then God leads you, he leads you into a difficulty, into a trial that you fail at. And it's there, and what he's doing, he's showing you that you don't have the faith you think you have. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. That's my prayer always. We need more faith. But, but whenever our faith is tested, when you get your faith really tested, You'll know how deep it is. And I've got to tell you, I've yet to meet the person who had really, maybe there's a few out there whose faith could pass any test. I've seen a few along the way. Mine won't. You get me in the right situation and, 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 and I'll be bitter too. I'll complain against the Lord too. And that's what these people did and that's what the Lord was showing them. Then we finish it up in, in verse number 26 and 27, it says, and, he, and, and said, he tested them and said, watch this carefully here. If you diligently heed the voice of Jehovah your God and do what is right in his sight. Watch this. Give ear to the commandments. Listen to what I tell you to do. And keep all my statutes. I will put none of these diseases on you which I have brought to the Egyptians. This is a conditional promise. Tough conditions, but it's a conditional promise. For the, for the Lord, for I am the Lord who heals. Literally, I am Jehovah Rapha. Jehovah Rapha, the Lord who heals. And then they, then they came to Elam. He, he takes them from Merah, this place of bitterness, and they came to Elam. He gives them this, this great promise, and then he takes them, the Lord leads them to Elam, where there were 12 wells of water and 70 palm trees. So they camped there by the waters. This is so full of rich symbolism right here. And I'm not going to be able to, to handle all of it. But, but let me just tell you a little bit about what's going on right here. The Lord was saying to them, if you don't turn on me from now on, when things get tough, and if you don't turn on me in bitterness, and you will serve me in joy, and keep my commandments, then yeah, you're going to have trials, and yeah, at times you're going to get sick, but I am Jehovah Rapha, and I will deliver you from your trials, and I will heal you of your sickness. That's a great promise. And just to show them that the promise was true, he takes them from Merah and he leads them to Elam. If you look at that word Elam, you see the L there, that's God. The Em is the Hebrew for plural. So it's the plural for God, Elim. Elim. Elim means the place of God. You see where he took them when he got them away from bitterness? And how did he get them away from bitterness? He threw the tree into the water, and the waters became sweet, 
and they became sweet, and they weren't bitter, and they were able to move on to the place of God, to Elam. Where do you want to live? You want to live at Elam? Because at Elam, look what you get. There were 70 palm trees, date trees, a better translation there. 70 in, the, in, in, in numerology, biblical numerology, means a, the perfect number of God. There were enough trees there to satisfy all the hunger of Israel. And there were uh, 12 wells full of water. So there was enough water there to satisfy all the thirst of Israel. You see what God wants to do with you? He wants to take you from Merah, the place of bitterness, and bring you to Elam, where, there's, where, where your hunger is totally satisfied and your thirst is totally satisfied. So, you see the picture. What the Lord, it's a picture for us. The Lord wants to lead us where? He wants to lead us to his holy habitation. And, and, and along the way, we're going to be tested. We're going to be tested uh, by the bitter waters of life. And we're really being tested by the bitter, bitter waters of life right now. But he doesn't want us to be bitter. He wants us to go beyond Marah and go to Elam. And he wants us to never be bitter. He doesn't want us to be spiritual, spiritually hunger, hungry or thirsty. And he promises. He promises that he's Jehovah Rapha. He's still Jehovah Rapha. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. People say this doesn't apply to you. This applies to Israel. Baloney, it applies to you. He's always been Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals, the God who restores. That's what this means. He's our Jehovah Rapha. He heals us of all our disease, and he will deliver us from all our trials. But listen to what you've got to do. All we have to do is to give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes. And we'll always be singing even in the rain. That's all you've got to do. Keep all his, hear all his commandments and keep all of them. That's all you've got to do. How many of you do that? Don't raise your hand. You're at the wrong church if you raise your hand. You might keep them most of the time. So what do we do when we don't keep them? He wants us to keep them. It's part of who we are. The law, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to those who believe. But the law isn't gone anywhere. Where is the law? The Bible says, I will, the Lord says, I will put my commandments, my laws, my statutes in your heart. It's there, but we don't always keep it. And so we suffer from all of these things and we suffer from bitterness. So what do we have to do? We have to cast the tree into those bitter waters. And the waters are made sweet. No matter what we face, no matter how difficult the trial, if we cast that cross if we look at that cross, we cast that cross into our situation, then we have eternal hope because we have eternal life. And we know that by his stripes that he took before he was on that cross and what he took on that cross, by his stripes we are healed. And we believe that. And 
we know that all our failures to keep the law, all our failures are covered in his blood. And when we focus on that tree and not our circumstances and not our own self-efforts to be righteous, when we focus on that cross and the righteousness that is a gift of God, then the bitter waters of life will become sweet and we'll look on the horizon and we'll see that great oasis called Elam, the place of God, his holy habitation. That's where I want to be always. And I can only be there through the blood of Jesus Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for your goodness. What a great, wonderful, majestic, mighty, glorious, holy God you are. Lord, we are so blessed to know you. Lord, we're living in difficult times. We know that. But Lord, we can live with joy and peace because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. But we need to take our eyes off of this world. Help us to do that, Lord. Make us holier than ever during these difficult days we, in which we live. Lord, help us to focus on you and help us to fo focus upon your grace that we have through the cross of Jesus Christ. We're so grateful for what you've done for us. We're so grateful for the blood. There's power in that blood. There's peace in that blood and there's joy in that blood. And we thank you, Lord, that you've made the bitter waters sweet. We thank you in the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.